Have you ever wanted to dive deeper into scripture? If so, you're in luck, because every day there's a new scripture reflection from the thoughtful staff at America Media, thinking through big questions together, like, what do Catholics believe about guardian angels? And what can Gen Zers take away from the Gospels? If you're already a subscriber, you can access these reflections in your email inbox or on our website. If you'd like to become a digital subscriber, it's easy to do. Just visit americamagazine.org slash subscribe, and you'll have full access to America's Scripture Reflections. Hello and welcome to Jesuitical, a podcast by the young, hip, and lay editors of America Media. That lay part means we aren't Jesuits, but we work with them. Join us each week for a smart Catholic take on faith, culture, and the news, often over drinks. I'm Ashley McKinless, and I'm joined by Zach Davis. Great to be with you, Ashley, at the end of another season of Bachelor in Paradise. I mean, another <laughs> episode of Jesuitical, a podcast for young Catholics. Please, no spoilers. I didn't get to watch the finale last night, so. I, I did. Did you? <laughs> um, yes. I uh, Normally, Amanda is watching the show with Ashley. My, Amanda's my wife. Um, but last night, they didn't get together, so I was uh, lucky Enlisted. enough to be able to. <laughs> to be able to watch the three-hour finale. Um, so I'm I'm excited for that to be over, um, but excited to get to this This is weird. I too. actually watched the sports game, <laughs> Yankees versus Boston Red Sox, and you were watching Bachelor. I know. It's a little sad. I was hoping that both of those teams could lose, um, but Boston managed to prevail. Anyway, what do we got going on this week? Uh, this week, we are talking to Nadra Niddle. She is a writer and author of the forthcoming book, Toni Morrison's Spiritual Vision, Faith, folktales, and feminism in her life and literature. Yeah, and this book actually was uh, started out as an article for America's website about Toni Morrison's Catholicism. I, there's when the terms Catholic novelist get thrown around um, a lot of times. Toni Morrison's name is missing from that list, and Nadra makes a pretty convincing case that that's that shouldn't happen. And I will say, if you're if you're starting to be like ah, haven't read any Toni Morrison, don't worry because this is still an interesting conversation. I make an embarrassing admission that I too have not read any Toni Morrison. Though after having this conversation with Nadra, I'm ready to try and tackle Beloved again. There you go. Yes. And Nadra also gave us a great drink recommendation. So what's on tap this week, Zach? So Nadra is out in sunny California where there is lots of sunshine, even though here on the East Coast, we are moving into fall. So we are taking advantage of that uh, spirit and spirits and having some strawberry margaritas. All right. Cheers. Cheers. Oh, that's good. We got we, we have freshly muddled strawberries, which really makes a difference. Yes. Occasionally, there are people who work in America who I think like forget that we do this podcast and will just like walk in on us in the kitchen, like making cocktails <laughs> pretty extensively. So we're we're muddling some strawberries. So thank you to our colleagues. We promise it's for work. <laughs> All right. Before we get to our conversation with Nadra Niddle. We have a few words about our sponsor this week. So if you're like us, maybe you spent some of this past year and a half during the pandemic kind of doing a little more mindless scrolling and streaming that maybe you've got that show that you just put on that doesn't make you think a lot. I know I have a number of those, those like 30 minute half hour comedies that I love, but I'm not really thinking when I watch them. And I'm starting to feel a little guilty about all the time I'm streaming and not doing something productive. Yes. So if you feel like that, you should definitely check out Wondrium. That's W-O-N-D-R-I-U-M. It 
if you know The Great Courses Plus, then you are going to love Wondrium because it's the new version of The Great Courses Plus. But it comes with so much more. That's right. And so they've got all sorts of of, of shows and in, informational content out there. I've been, I know one thing that I've been doing, they've got some stuff for professional development too, which is not something I had explored recently. So I've been looking at how to speak effectively in any setting. I like I like to think that I speak effectively in a podcast setting, but sometimes when we're doing live events, I definitely like get super nervous and I, I rush through some things that I thought I could have said better or more clearly. And so I'm getting a lot out of that. Have you been watching any? Yeah, I would also consider my latest listen some professional development. I okay. listened to the uh, introduction to formal logic, uh, which basically goes through, you know, what makes a good, valid argument. And I thought it could really help me in my uh, arguments with you on the podcast. Joke's on you. I took logic in college and I'm pretty sure got an A minus. So um, you're going to have to do better than that. Okay. But do you remember it? That was like, what, seven years ago now? Uh, I do remember some things. What are the four major types of logical fallacies? Oh, wow. That's pretty arbitrary. I would say that's, uh, I I can't even weasel my way out of that one. So I'm going to have to watch that too. (laughs) All right. So if you want to, you know, argue better with your friends, talk better in uh, public settings or so many other things, learn crafts, uh, you know, learn about history, philosophy, new languages, new languages. If you're traveling, they have travel guides so much. We know that you're going to love Wondrium. And so they put together a special offer for our listeners. It's a free month trial of unlimited access to those courses that Ashley was talking about. To redeem that, go to our special URL, wondrium.com slash Jesuitical. That's W-O-N-D-R-I-U-M dot com slash Jesuitical. That, think of how much you're going to learn in a month. So check out wondrium.com slash Jesuitical to get that now. And now it's time for Signs of the Times, the part of our show where we sift through the Catholic news of the week so you don't have to. What's our first story, Zach? So we've got some tough news to talk about. I'm sure you've already seen it. A report came out this week out of France that it was an independent commission set up to study the problem of sex abuse in the French Catholic Church. And it concluded that an estimated 330,000 children were victims of sex abuse within France's Catholic Church over the past 70 years. Right. And it also found that some 3,000 priests and other church workers were responsible for these cases of abuse, and about two-thirds of the cases were committed by members of the clergy. This independent commission was set up in 2018 at the request of the Bishops' Conference of France and the National Congregations Conference. And this was coming in response to you know, a, a sex abuse scandal in France involving a cardinal, um, and also in the wake of Pope Francis's initiatives in, in 2018 to really set standard or, you know, universal norms for how the church deals with sex abuse. Right. And so you might be thinking, this is like Groundhog Day, we're doing this again. Um, because the fact of the matter is, there's not as much of there have been reforms and initiatives to try and universalize some of the response to this, the way in which it's what the church has already done and failed to do, there's not been a universal norm for figuring that out and uncovering that. Right. So in response to this latest response, Pope Francis said, I wish to express to the victims my sadness, my grief for the traumas they have endured, and also my shame. He said, our shame is for the too lengthy inability of the church to put victims at the center of its concerns. Yeah. And I want to just like 
bring two takeaways. I, I, here's here's the first one. This is going to happen again. Um, in some ways, this is a this is a positive development because the French bishops sort of requested this investigation on their own accord, as opposed to the U.S., where this grand jury report was done on the behest of state authorities, not the church, and it you know kind of shook the entire church afterwards. Yes. On the other hand, it sort of they requested it after a number of scandals had already started to unravel in, in, in France. And so you're going to continue to see this from other countries and other parts of the world. And we've we already have, right? We've seen this in Germany and Australia and Poland. And it's going to continue happening unless there's some type of, you know, truth and reconciliation effort by the church that's mandated from the top down, which we have the structures in place to kind to do to figure out why how and why the abuse happened and figure out the extent of it. Cause that's the the big thing is there's not a ton of transparency. I think we, we have ideas based on what's happened everywhere, but we don't know the number of victims and survivors. And so the church could lead in, in a real way on how to respond to this and heal from this. It has unique, <laughs> not only unique resources, but unique commitments and, you know, commitments to reconciliation and restoration and, forgiveness and um, repentance that it it's within the tradition and it's you know we're, it's just waiting for leaders to really embrace it yep so stay tuned there have been a lot of reforms that have already happened we've talked about it on this show we America produced an entire podcast series if so if that's you should check that out if you want to learn more it's called deliver us it's you can find it in the same podcast network you found this one um, but just be prepared for this to continue to come up again and again, unless there are some bigger things that that change. What's our next story, Ashley? So this week on Monday, October 4th, 40 faith leaders met at the Vatican with Pope Francis to call for urgent action on climate change. This is coming ahead of the 26th UN Climate Change Conference, known as COP26. It's happening in Glasgow, Scotland this month. And Pope Francis has been, you know, from the beginning of his papacy, you know, really pushing for for the world to treat climate change with the urgency it deserves. And this is just one more instance of that. Yeah, the images are pretty striking, right? You've got, as you mentioned, 40 faith leaders, and they're they're representing what's estimated to be basically 84% of the world's faithful. So all coming together to do to send a common message about fighting climate change in yeah and not just and, not just christian leaders we should say like sikhs buddhists muslims Jews, yeah every yeah all coming together like the like the avengers or something to stop climate change and i i thought they were striking because they're pushing they're pushing world leaders obviously to commit to some of the things that were set forth in the paris climate accords but there's a lot of messaging to young people directly from faith leaders and so it's worth checking out you know saying it's going to be on us this is the world that we're going to live in to to stop and stand up for either actions that hurt the earth or inaction to to try and save it. Yeah. Um, One quote I... that really stuck out to me was um, from the document that they're sending to world leaders at the at COP26 was, future generations will never forgive us if we miss the opportunity to protect our common home. We have inherited a garden. We must not leave a desert to our children. And I don't know if you can hear the frustration of younger generations when when they're thinking about climate change. And, and some of them, it comes out as despair, like, all right, we're already, there's nothing that can be done now. And others, there's a real frustration and even anger with world leaders. Um, Greta Thunberg was speaking at a conference at the in Italy last week and said, you know, there was the 
like striking quote of like blah 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 that's all we hear from our leaders on climate change yeah it's um it's tough but i think we can't give up yet that's what the pope is saying and it oftentimes feels like it's young people against old politicians and evil oil barons but it's a good reminder that there is at least one old guy who's on our side pope yes. francis and you uh you uh tried to get that me- message to the youth i did i i, I so i t- dipped my toe into tiktok to try and uh try and try and uh get this message out there to the to the future generations right um i don't know if i did great but if you're a tiktoker you you can find that um it's my, my handle's at zach davis d-a-y-v-s be forgiving gen z we're 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 old old millennials <laughs> i mean we're still out. young and hip and light but we're older than you yes so you can find that on TikTok, but follow along. We've got a lot more climate stuff coming up. We're going to be all over this uh, conference happening in Scotland. So stay tuned for more from us. And also stay tuned for our conversation with Nadra Niddle. Joining us from L.A. is Nadra Niddle. Nadra is a writer and the author of the forthcoming book, Toni Morrison's Spiritual Vision, Faith, Folktales, and Feminism in Her Life and Literature. Welcome to Jesuitical, Nadra. Thank you for having me. Thanks for being here. And congratulations on the book. We were, we were talking a little bit, but this actually stemmed from an article that you wrote for America. Is that right? That's correct. A former America editor reached out to me four years ago and asked if I could write about the role of religion and Toni Morrison's book Song of Solomon and Beloved. So I wrote an article about that in 2017 when Morrison was still alive. And about two years after that, a press called Fortress Press reached out to me and asked if I could write a whole article based on what I covered in or a whole book. book. I mean, I'm sorry, a whole book. Yes. And we'll, we'll link to the article uh, in our show notes that the article was The Ghost of Toni Morrison, A Catholic Writer Confronts the Legacy of Slavery. Um, so apparently you had a lot to mind there to fill it out into a book. Now, before we start, I do have like a pretty sh- embarrassing thing I want to get off my chest. <laughs> okay. Which is that I've not read any Toni Morrison. Oh, wow. Um, okay. But I have read the book <laughs> and your article now. Um, so I'm, I feel I feel primed and ready to go. But I, just in case there's anyone listening who is also embarrassed of that fact, that glaring hole in my my own personal development <laughs> and education, uh, you're not alone. I'm all, I, I will try to represent you today. <laughs> what did you major in? Philosophy and theology. Oh, okay. Yeah. And I was never assigned it in anything in high school or, or college. And I don't know, it's just been, I mentioned an episode or two ago that, you know, there have been, I, I was just staring at the the books that I was supposed to read this summer and, and, and Beloved was definitely there. Yeah. Um, so it, it, it's been staring at me harder uh, as this interview <laughs> has gotten closer and closer. Right. Uh, <laughs> yeah, uh, I have read Beloved, but I, I think that's the only one. So I definitely have a lot to, a lot to get through too. So how did you, how did you, uh, discover Toni Morrison? Was she someone you've been reading for a long time or did you come upon her later in life? So I was assigned her first book, The Bluest Die, when I was in, an, in high school. I think I was a high school senior and that was the only book I was assigned as a high school student. And then in college, we read, I was an English major and so we read several of her books in my college 
literature classes. Not all of them, but pretty much everything. Her first book, The Bluest Eye, came out in 1970. So I think we read all of the books from the 70s, the 80s, and most of the 90s. So quite, you know, quite a few. And then we kind of ran out of time before we could get to the late 90s and some of the books that she came out with in in the 2000s. Now, for someone who maybe doesn't know much other than they've heard the name Toni Morrison, who 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 is she? And, and you know, what are some of her most famous works? So, Toni Morrison is an American novelist. Some people would say she's one of the greatest American novelists of our time. She was born in the early 1930s. She's won the Nobel Prize in literature. So she's won pretty much the, you know, the top honors you can think of. Her most famous books would be The Bluest Eye. It's also one of her most controversial books, as well as Song of Solomon, Beloved, which was turned into a movie starring Oprah Winfrey. And we we want to get into this idea of what it means to be a, a Catholic writer and if and how those themes play out in her works. But can you start with just a little bit of her her upbringing? Uh, because she she wasn't born Catholic. Uh, she converted at a younger age, and she had some other influences there. Uh, so could you just give us a a brief overview of that? Yeah. So Toni Morrison, she grew up in this town called Lorraine, Ohio. She lived with both of her parents. Her father came from Georgia and her mother came from Alabama. And her mother grew up in the African Methodist Episcopal Church, so the AME Church. So when Toni Morrison was a small child, that was pretty much the only church she knew. However, there was a wing of her family that were Catholics, and she was really fascinated by some of the the rituals, the ceremonies of Catholicism, and the aesthetics, she said, And that led her to convert to Catholicism when she was just 12 years old. It's even more embarrassing that you haven't read her now that you hear she's from Ohio. Zach is a very proud Ohioan. (laughs) Yes. One of the many reasons I should be embarrassed by this. Um, Now, you write in the book, as a woman who believed in magic, centered on the divine feminine in her literature, and wrote for Black readers, her attraction to Catholicism makes perfect sense. Uh, Could you unpack that a little bit more? Yeah. So... In the book, I talk about the fact, I talk about some differences between being a Protestant, being a Catholic. I mean, I grew up as a Protestant, not as a Catholic. But I think for Morrison, she was not only drawn to some of the rituals of Catholicism, which she really wouldn't have been exposed to going to not just the non-Catholic church, but like a you know low church Christian <laughs> denomination. She wouldn't have really seeing all those rituals and ceremonies. So that was one reason she was drawn to it. And then also just the belief Catholics have in miracles. And it's not that Protestants don't believe in miracles, but I think we tend to look at miracles as something in the past, as something in ancient times, whereas Catholics, if there's a statue, if there's a report of a statue of the Virgin Mary crying or bleeding or something like that, the Catholic Church will actually investigate that. I think for Protestants, that's not really, you know, belief in miracles. It's it's not that we don't believe in it, but I wouldn't say there's as much of an emphasis on that. And I think Toni Morrison, having grown up in a family 
who wasn't just religious, but they also did believe in things that would be considered magic or miracles or all of the above. I think it made sense for her to be drawn to Catholicism. You mentioned in your book that Toni Morrison didn't often talk very publicly about her faith. She kind of wanted to protect that from from public scrutiny. But she does she does talk about being very comfortable with the aesthetics, which some people might, you know, interpret to be, oh, it's a more superficial uh, kind of faith. But I, I, that doesn't seem right to me. And I'm wondering, so what, what do you, why do you think that aspect of the faith was so important to her as as a person and and as a writer? We should. I, I was stunned. I, when I read in your book, you mentioned that um, she had kind of a crisis of faith after Vatican II because she really was attached to the Latin so much. Yes. <laughs> um, which I was like, whoa, was not expecting that. Yeah. So the line about the aesthetics, I think she was saying in the beginning of her journey as a Catholic, right? So probably as a child, as a teenager, I think she was more into the aesthetics back then, but she grew into being a very serious Catholic. She took her faith very seriously when she had her two sons. She had them baptized in the Catholic church, but religion, while it's in all of her books, it's not something she was asked about as much, nor is it something that she you know, discussed as much. And I think one of her books that was pretty explicitly religious, which is Paradise, which came out in 1997, some people even criticized the book for its religious content. And I think she expected it and commented on, on some of the criticism she faced for kind of having this overtly religious book, or at least a book that overtly dealt with these different religious themes. You sort of open this, uh, your original America essay with a question of, you know, can we consider Toni Morrison a Catholic writer? For for a number of reasons, it's kind of like, you know, questioned. But I feel like there are other writers who have sort of like, you know, unique relationships to the Catholic Church that we sort of, you know, gloss over or take for granted, you know, when considering them a Catholic writer or not. And I'm wondering what you think about that, the de- general debate about whether or not to consider her a Catholic writer and, and what's behind that? Yeah, I mean, there are authors like Flannery O'Connor. Every, everyone thinks of Flannery O'Connor as being a Catholic author. I think, again, with Morrison, it was something I, I read dozens of interviews just in researching my book, and it just doesn't seem like it was a question that she got a lot, but it, you know, but it's in there. Sometimes it's just a passing reference. In The Bluest Eye, there are references to nuns. In her follow-up book to that, Sula, there's many different references, not just to kind of Protestant Black churches, but also to the Virgin Mary. But it's not necessarily in your face. And so I think if you're not looking for it, or if you don't, you know, belong to any religious faith or Christian faith or Catholicism, you may not pick up on it. So I don't think she's hitting you over the head with it. But I think her identity as a Black woman writer kind of eclipsed her identity um, as a Catholic, at least in terms of the press, Not certainly not in her personal life, where you know she's quoted as saying she took her faith seriously for years and years and years. Right. Maybe let's focus in on those other two parts of her identity, because she is someone um, you write who is, you know, sort of unapologetically writing 
uh, as a black woman and for a black audience. Some of the things that are carried in her writing, you mentioned a lot of West African spiritual traditions that get passed on. Um, what? How does that play into her work and, and where does that turn up in her novels? So I think that's also something that's you can find in all of her novels. So she has whether they're, you know, Protestant black preachers, whether they are, you know, the occasional nun who who pops up. She also has these kind of African American healing women who are, you know, they have embraced healing traditions that can be traced back to West Africa. So the first such woman appears in the bluest eye. There's a a character in the book who gets sick and people are praying for her. And then they go to, I think the town doctor, the town minister, no one can really heal this woman. And then they reach out to this healing woman who lives in the woods, which is kind of like even a biblical trope, right? The person who lives in the, in the wilderness. So this woman's living in the wilderness. She's very in tune, you know, with spirituality, with her intuition, with healing. And um, she gives the, the sick woman some advice. So there's always these kind of healing women and some of their methods of healing, um, I would say, are rooted in West Africa. But at the same time, um, these women typically also have a strong Christian faith as well. So it's not either or, it's both. And I would say that that's based on Toni Morrison's own family members, her mother, her grandmother, and other family members. Um, her One of her grandmothers was a midwife, for example. And I think a lot of the characters are based on women she knew in real life. Yeah. Do you think that syncretism is in tension with what makes these novels have a, a Catholic feel or or is part of it? That they are part of it. I don't feel like Morrison kind of sees them as opposing forces because I think the women she grew up with um, didn't see them as opposing forces. So her mother and other family members, I mean, they believe that they had visitations from ghosts. One story that Morrison talked about was the fact that she and her sister, when they were very small children, were exposed to tuberculosis. But her mother, you know, something told her, do not put her in a sanatorium, even though that's what the doctors wanted. And so she listened to kind of her sixth sense, didn't put her daughters in a sanatorium. During a time, this was the 1930s, when there was no cure for tuberculosis yet. And you likely, you know, you had about a 50-50 chance of surviving if you had been placed in one. And her mother chose not to. They survived. And so Morrison grew up looking at, you know, her mother's intuition, the ghost stories her mother and other people told. You know, she grew up considering these really powerful women. And she believed that there were human experiences feelings, gut instincts, whatever you want to call them, that could not be explained by science. And she, that's reflected in her writing and her characters as well. You you highlighted something that I thought was really interesting where Morrison points out that some of these beliefs are are not really new or even unique to to black people but because they're um how does she put it? Uh discredited. They're di- com- yes, coming from discredited people that they often get these labels of superstition or magic. Um, whereas at other times in history, you see Catholicism blending with other cultures in ways that's a bit more, uh, I guess, like uh, amicable. And I, I guess there's 
the like the the race racial element there I thought was really really fascinating. Yeah, I mean, and and she kind of had a, a conflict with the term magic. Sometimes she would use the word magic in her personal life when she was giving interviews. Magic is a term that pops up in her books. Yet at the same time, she had this concern, like you mentioned, about the fact that these were valid spiritual traditions. So the spirituality of, you know, different West African peoples, that those were just as valid as any other faith tradition. But because those people had been discredited, their beliefs had kind of just been dismissed as magic, as belief in magic, as opposed to a legitimate religious faith. So she had some concerns about that. She also had concerns about her novels being considered magical realism because she believed her characters were reflecting the beliefs that many African-American people had um, when she was growing up and that they weren't magical realism. The magic in her books reflects the actual things that people believed in and it wasn't a literary device. Now, what do you know about what her relationship was to the institutional church as she continued her career as a writer? I don't know. We don't know a whole lot just because she didn't go into detail about it. But I mean, she was concerned about Vatican II, about, you know, services no longer being given in Latin. That was something, I guess, that really made her upset. We know that she said that she was really serious about her faith for a long time. But at a certain point, she started to fall away. She didn't exactly say when that was, but what she did say is that Pope Francis could lure her back. So she was a really ardent admirer of Pope Francis. She liked him a lot. And so one of the last interviews she gave, she talked about how the ways that he's kind of been an unconventional Pope is something that was attracting her back to the church. So when she died, it's hard to say exactly, you know, where she was. I guess I wouldn't describe her completely as a lapsed Catholic, but I think she was a Catholic who maybe wasn't as serious as she had been when she was younger, but she was still a believer, I would say. You know, there's this Bible verse that says, um, you know, I believe, help me overcome my unbelief. I think she might have been kind of there you know, when when she died. What do you think about this? I think maybe it's unique to the Catholics in the United States where for so long we've been kind of like living in a Protestant country. And so there's this desire to like claim Catholics to make sure that everyone knows that we're contributing to politics and arts and whatnot. Do you think that's a healthy instinct from like your perspective as an as an outsider to the church <laughs> <laughs> to, to want to claim catholics yeah. i mean i think you know marginalized groups do that all the time so yeah whether it has to do with religion or race or gender you know whatever it is or just coming from a certain town that maybe has been overlooked that people always want to claim those individuals so a lot of people are surprised when they find out that morrison was a catholic so it's something that I, I think comes across as a as a pleasant surprise to fellow Catholics when when they find out 
that she was one too, just because it, it wasn't really discussed. When I wrote the article for America, for example, I think my article was like one of the few that even mentioned yeah. that. And then upon her death, you saw a lot of articles that actually piggybacked on my article discussing her Catholicism, but that conversation just wasn't really happening when she was alive. So fascinating. Yeah. I mean, I think it's, <laughs> yeah. I want to ask you about the the role of memory in Morrison's work. I was thinking about this while reading your book um, and researching some stuff on um, Beloved. And it seems to me that it's like really important to for Morrison to kind of really look at slavery and what that did to Black people in this country and how those stories kind of um, developed. And the church is at a place right now, the Catholic Church in the United States, where it's trying to grapple with its role in slavery. And I was thinking about the way that we use memory typically in the in the church. It's always like we look back at the tradition and we always and we always look at the good things. We're always like, oh, that was a you know a, a saint, so we should follow their example. Or tradition is always de facto a good thing, and we always have to like you know learn from it in that sense. But Morrison sort of is like willing to look at all of the ugly parts too, right? Like she has all of these characters who have horrible things happen to them and do horrible things too. Um, how how does that? What's Toni Morrison's like? I guess philosophy on memory and the and what it does to us as a living people. Yeah, I mean, I think her her interest in memory to me is is also very Christian. I think it's related to trauma. That I guess if if we don't look back on these painful memories, especially in Beloved, they will kind of continue to haunt us, which literally happens to a character in Beloved who's haunted um, by her daughter. And so memory is something, you know, it's a sign that we need to look back on our trauma. We need to address that. We need to heal that, whether that is you know, related to something that happened to an individual or to a group of people in the case of African-Americans and enslavement. And so I think Toni Morrison has also had her critics, um, people like the late Stanley Crouch. He, He was a critic of hers. He thought she focused too much on, you know, traumatic events Um, dysfunctional families, just kind of these, you know, ugly parts of life that other people really wouldn't necessarily want to focus on. But she said that she did that because, you know, she was interested in, in doing that and providing kind of a path for others to look at and to heal. And the reason I guess I consider that to be pretty Christian is because it, it kind of emulates what Jesus said about, you know, being being here to heal the sick as opposed to the people who, you know, they didn't need healing. I think as an author, Morrison was very focused on those who needed healing. So whether it was the traumatized little girl in the bluest eye, you know, to the traumatized woman um, of Beloved. Yeah, that kind of gets to the next question I wanted to ask. Uh, Her books, as we've said, often center black female characters and often kind of prophetic female voices. And yeah, so I'm wondering, do you see her as kind of one of those characters in our own, you know, still very male dominated society and church? 
Yeah, I don't know if I see her as being like prophetic. And that's just because she never said that she had any of those gifts. She, Whenever she talked about having any sort of spiritual gifts, she always connected those to other family members. But we definitely know that the women in her life, her mother, you know, grandmothers, aunts, even her father, she discusses in that context as, as well, at least as being a storyteller and um, passing down some traditions. Now, I guess I was thinking more, of, you, know, you know, in the biblical prophetic tradition of prophets being people who look at the society around them and and call out injustice where where they see it. So not necessarily the more maybe mystical uh, side of that. Um, so yeah, did I guess where did she see her role in in that? I see. Yeah, I mean, I would say she was prophetic. When we look at a book like The Bluest Eye and some of the issues that deals with, such as colorism within the African-American community, um, child abuse, sexual abuse, I mean, these are all topics that we continue to discuss today, you know? So in that sense, she wrote that book in 1970, so 51 years ago, and much of the content it's not a book I necessarily like to go back to because it is kind of disturbing, but much of the content is very much relevant today. I mean, and she was actively engaged in, I mean, conversations up until her death, right? I remember it was, or you point out in the book, after former President Trump was elected, she wrote an essay for The New Yorker about um, his very frequent instances of racism in his own life. Um, so she was like constantly still pointing that out. You mentioned that the novel was... Morrison's sort of preferred way of, of of doing this, right? Telling these stories, passing on these traditions, having these conversations. I'm curious what you think is the the art form today. Is were that the most interesting thing is happening there? Is it still the novel, or is it the serialized Netflix TV uh, drama, or is it podcasting, or what, what what has the most effect? Do you think? Yeah, for the younger generation. It's hard to say. I mean, it could be something like TikTok or YouTube, right? It may not even be, we may be beyond the serialized show on Netflix. And the only reason I mention, you know, TikTok or YouTube, just because, you know, you can pass a lot, especially TikTok, people, a, a lot of people who are interested in history, there's history teachers who are going on there and breaking down very complex topics in you know, a very short amount of time and, and kids are paying attention and using that to do their homework. So yeah, I, I definitely don't think it's the novel anymore. I don't know if that's something to be sad about or not. So I think social media might be the way we learn about um, some of those folktales and other traditions that Morrison, she wanted to make sure younger generations knew about and passed on. Well, we won't let Zach and our readers off the hook. They should still read her novels. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Uh, Nadris, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us. We do have one final question that we ask all of our guests, and that is if you could canonize one person, uh, Catholic or not, living or dead, fictional or real, who would it be and why? You know, there's one woman I, I wrote about in the book, um, Henriette DeLille. And I guess if she, if she were canonized, she would be the first um, African-American saint. So I think it would be really interesting <laughs> to see if that happened. We haven't seen that before. 
and she was someone we're not exactly sure about her origins, but I mean, she dedicated her life to really serving marginalized people and reached out to, to other women of color and kind of played a crucial role in them becoming nuns and being involved in the Catholic Church in other ways. So I guess I would say I would say her. Okay, Henriette DeLille. All right, Nadra, the, the book, thanks so much again. Um, and for our listeners, the book is Toni Morrison's Spiritual Vision, Faith, Folktales, and Feminism in Her Life in Literature by Nadra Niddle. Um, we'll link to it in the show notes. Congratulations again. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Thanks so thanks, much. Nadra. I will make it easy for you now. Mm-hmm. You got two minutes of my time. And I don't really break too easily, but I'm worth it. I'll slip into your dreams tonight. So give me, so give me your all. I'll take it, I'll take it tomorrow. So I stick like glue inside your mind. Just watch me break in. Now it's time for some housekeeping. What do we have this week, Zach? Wanted to give a shout out to everybody who participated in our Twitter thread for the feast of St. Francis of Assisi, which was this Monday, October 4th. Uh, so we, the Jesuitical Twitter account, which is at Jesuitical Show, you should follow it. You know, we put a shout out, send us, send us your pets in the thread, and you guys did not disappoint. I think we got like... 30 pictures of cats and dogs, which were all adorable. Yeah, it's our, it was our own virtual like blessing of the animals that yeah. happens, I've, which I've, I've never, I haven't had a pet in a long time. So I know, I, I haven't either. Yeah, so this was our vicarious enjoyment of, of the pet blessing. Yeah, so thank you. Thank you to everybody who participated in that. Um, and it's actually, it's a good, it, social media is a good segue to our next session. Yes. So now it's time for As One Friend Speaks to Another, the part of our show where we talk about where we're finding God in our lives. What do you have this week, Zach? So Facebook and Instagram were in the news this week, um, further solidifying their, uh, I don't know, status as <laughs> evil global corporation and thing that we all use, but also know is terrible. And I had a reminder this week that there can still be some good things that come from it. So little little context, um, I shared on this show before that my grandma died last year from ovarian cancer. And this past week, my mom and grandfather got connected through like 30 different share chains to uh, a family who have a um, young woman who's turning 21 this weekend, who is sort of near the end of her like 13 year struggle with ovarian cancer. And so she's moving through some things on her bucket list. And two of the things on her bucket list included uh, going to Michigan and riding in a side-by-side, which um, for people who don't know what that is, it's like a four-wheeler and a go-kart combined. So it's like a razor. And that was unique for our family, um, both because we have this connection to ovarian cancer, but also my family, that's where like my family goes to vacation every year is is Michigan. And we and we ride four-wheelers and side-by-sides when we go there. And so my mom mom reached out was like hey i think we can we can help out with two of these and so this past weekend they all got together and you know i it, that itself is this like there's a lot of pascal mystery stuff going on there with like hope and suffering and fi- finding all of those things together but it was also a reminder to me that even though there's this evil thing facebook that it, there there are these structures that we know are bad but god can still work through them yeah. 
Now, as I'm listening to you tell that really moving, beautiful story, um, you know, I was like, you know, part of me was like racking my brain. It was like, do I have anything? <laughs> has has any good come of my life from social from tw- from social media? Um, and I'm sure there there are examples, but I think hearing this story, what I what I'm hearing you, you know, trying to say is that you know, yes, this could be a fallen sinful structure like the rest of our world but you know like keep your eyes peeled for those moments where god's breaking in and don't don't give in to the cynicism that is very tempting to fall into right which I, you know i'm trying i'm not trying to draw too much meaning out of this this one encounter or from you know whether or not to be on facebook or not in general but i do think you're right there are just things in our world that we are participants in and we assume that god can't work in in them and God continually shows Just, us that. Yeah, it's kind of the Jesuits' whole thing. Finding God in all things. That's a good, I think it's a good place to wrap. Yeah. So uh, listeners, this week, I maybe just think about like, if you're on social media, has it has it been all bad? I know it's easy to think about all of the bad things. and um, But maybe just look for, try to call to mind a place where you saw God working in social media. All right. And with that, I will get us out of here. Jesuitical is produced by Sebastian Gomes with production assistance from Kevin Jackson and Kira Hanlon. Our sound engineer is Kevin Christopher Robles. Faith Formation provided by Father Eric Sundrup. You can follow us on Twitter at Jesuitical Show. You can find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash groups slash Jesuitical. Please subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your favorite podcasts and leave us a review. Jesuitical is a production of America Media and is recorded in the William J. Loeschert Studio in New York City. For America Media, I'm Ashley McKinless with Zach Davis. We'll see you next week. Have you ever wanted to dive deeper into scripture? If so, you're in luck, because every day there's a new scripture reflection from the thoughtful staff at America Media, thinking through big questions together, like, what do Catholics believe about guardian angels? And what can Gen Zers take away from the Gospels? If you're already a subscriber, you can access these reflections in your email inbox or on our website. If you'd like to become a digital subscriber, it's easy to do. Just visit americamagazine.org slash subscribe, and you'll have full access to America's scripture reflections.